0: Welcome, everyone. This is your next edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and want to thank the Peace Alliance for co-sponsoring this programming, which is ongoing. And you can always go to restorativejusticeontherise.com, and in the very near future, we are going to be updated with an iTunes podcast and archives from the last three years of this programming. We hope you enjoy this, this programming as an interactive dialogue forum, a place to gain tools, education, resources and to connect with others working and related to the field working in and related to the field of restorative justice and the general justice conversation in the United States and beyond. This is one of the few platforms that we, the people have to come together and dialogue and talk about important issues and we hope you'll come back and join us live. Today's call is a pre-record, and we're really excited to have Jennifer larson Sawan and Erin Freeborn from Massachusetts. Erin uh, is from the Juvenile Court Restorative Justice Diversion Program, and Jennifer represents Communities for Restorative Justice. And again, they're both from Massachusetts. They've been extremely active in the movement forward of the bill, Senate Bill 2078, an act promoting restorative justice practices. So we'll be talking about that and more today. This is going to be a shorter session and we hope that it will be an inspiring one for you to hear their stories and what's informed their service in this field, uh, a field that's growing rapidly. So I want to just share a little bit about each of their programs um, and tell you a little bit about Jennifer and Erin before we go into dialogue with them today. Jennifer Larson Sawin is the Executive Director of what is called C4RJ, Communities for Restorative Justice. They respond to crime in ways that heal, hold accountable and put right. Jennifer has a passion for both the principle and practice of restorative methods for dealing with wrongdoing and crime And prior to her position with C4RJ as its ED, she headed a juvenile restorative program in Charlottesville, Virginia. It paired with an emerging adult program as well. She holds an MA in conflict transformation with an emphasis in restorative justice. Her graduate work was under the tutelage of the wonderful Howard Zare, who is widely considered to be the grandpapa of this important field There authored the foundational text, which is called Changing Lenses, which many of you surely probably have read, in which he compares restorative justice to retributive justice and proposes that crime is a violation of people as well as a violation of law. What's very profound and compelling about Jennifer is her interest in harm and conflict Uh, that traces back to her childhood in southern Africa in the twilight years of apartheid. This has informed uh, the rest of her work and the concept of Ubuntu, which is a Bantu word, roughly translated as a person is a person through other people. Imbued with this cultural instinct, Jennifer has consulted with restorative justice agencies in Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and South Africa, and at C4RJ, Jennifer guides case coordinators as they shepherd cases, develops policies on practice, and sp- spends considerable time on training, fundraising, and regional outreach. So, Jennifer, let's start with you, and then we'll come back to you, Erin, in just a moment, and open with you as well. But I want to—I really want to hear in our shorter podcast today what compelled you, um, and a little bit more about your st- your background and history. Um, and inspired you from South, your time in South Africa and Ireland and otherwise to serve in this field and as um, extraordinarily as you do. Thank you so much for being here today on
1: Restorative Justice on the Rise and welcome. Thanks, Molly. It's, um, yeah, it's a great pleasure to be with you and, um, and keep company with hopefully a lot of listeners uh, around the country and the world who are interested in these principles. Um, thanks for uh, for giving a bit of my bio there. Uh, yes, I was uh, born in what was then called Zaire, it's now the Congo, uh, with parents who were interested in the, um, in the late uh, 60s, early 70s in doing uh, service work abroad. Uh, so I think you know, coming from a family of people who are interested in uh, you know, making communities better is something that definitely influenced me as a child. Um, I was about five years old when our family moved to Botswana, uh, further south. And, uh, you know, it was in the early 80s when apartheid was uh, in its final throes just across the border in South Africa. And during that time as a child, you know, I... I. Um, felt the violence spilling over the border. There were a number of cross-border raids by the South African military uh, operatives to root out uh, African National Congress refugees, uh, the party affiliated with Nelson Mandela, who was still in prison at the time, um, who had sought refuge uh, in neighboring countries, having been targeted by the apartheid regime. Um, my father was responsible for uh, helping to resettle many of these refugees in, um, in other countries around the world. Um, but I think you know, the political context at that time, we all believed that South Africa was really on the brink of civil war and that there was nothing that could prevent that inevitability. And uh, it was shortly after Nelson Mandela was released from prison that uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and other leaders, many of them from the faith uh, communities, started to formulate this idea of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, and since then, you know, known as the TRC, it's become a template for many other countries who are emerging from uh, years of, of strife and war um, to find a way forward that uh, holds people accountable but also provides answers and, um, uh, and hopefully meaning to victims and survivors uh, of harm. So when we saw that develop and, um, you know, that it presented an option that was far more favorable than Civil War, uh, those ideas kind of stuck with me. And um, when I went to graduate school then in conflict resolution, conflict transformation at Eastern Mennonite University um, uh, and had a conversation with Howard there, then I sort of put two and two together that this is really what I wanted to do professionally um, so that's a little bit about, about sort of the early years for me. And I, I did go do some, some field work in, in Northern Ireland and the Republic, there were a number of uh, organizations doing restorative justice in the wake of the Troubles um, and in you know, communities that had been really affected by sectarian violence. And um, that network of restorative justice organizations was basically trying to find a way to work better together. So I went over to, uh, to do some consulting with them. Um, And that was, I think, another window into how powerful restorative justice principles can be, even in um, situations that seem to be, um, you know, just too far gone. Uh, So that that was inspiring Mm -hmm. for me. Jennifer, do you think that one of the major
0: elements that restorative justice can provide is a cognizance of cause and effect, and, and is that the is that at the root of its efficacy? Do you think?
1: Yeah. No. I, I think that um, you know that that's insightful. Really, to have someone who's caused harm understand the full ramifications of that harm, and too often I think they are separated from it. Uh, they don't even um, yeah they, they don't understand the the ripple effects of the harm that they've caused. So uh, you know during the truth and reconciliation commission hearings when um you know people could uh could ask for answers about where where did you bury my son i want to bury his bones in a place that um, in a plot where my ancestors are buried, uh, you know, he disappeared, and I don't know what happened to him. And I want to go, and, and rebury his his remains. Um, you know, those that's that's a ripple effect from a harm you know that that was caused under the apartheid regime. And then to have someone understand um, that a mother was grieving and had been grieving, um, you know, that that's an important connection that restorative principles can make.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a broad, expansive experience you've had from early on. Thank you so much for sharing that and I just want to go over to welcome and introduce Erin Freeborn who is the Executive Director of Juvenile Court Restorative Justice Diversion. and She was one of the founders of JCRJD and is a former criminal defense attorney. And of course, like I said, she now runs the program. She's educated in both theology and law with a focus on restorative justice. And in her studies, she spent time working in New Zealand to better understand how restorative justice is used in the juvenile juvenile and adult court systems. She participated in Maori restorative conferences and helped write an evaluation commissioned by the Ministry of Justice that analyzed and recommended best practice principles for an organization using restorative justice to address sexual violence. And in Massachusetts, Erin has been a leader in the Northeastern University School of Law restorative justice programs. She helped craft restorative justice language for proposed legislation and is a regular speaker at Boston University and UMass Lowell restorative justice classes. She's educated state senators and reps, juvenile court justices, prosecutors, and defense attorneys, academics, and community members about the benefits and feasibility of incorporating restorative justice into our judicial system. And during the last four years, she's worked towards institutional engagement between the legal system and a restorative justice-based diversionary program in the commonwealth. She has earned a B.A. in World Religions from Wright State University, a Master of Divinity from Boston University, a Certificate in Conflict conflict Transformation from the Boston Theological Institute, and a J.D. from Northeastern University School of Law. So it's just a a great pleasure and honor, again, to have you here today, Erin, with us and as with Jennifer, if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit about that incredible experience in New Zealand, and anything else you'd like to share to open this conversation about your what's informed your service to this field, and and how how much you're catalyzing it. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you, Molly, very much. Um, it's actually it's quite an honor to be here with you. Um, I first. Really learned about and understood restorative justice when I was at Boston University getting my master's degree my master's of divinity and Certificate in conflict transformation. I started to learn about restorative justice in the academic context and It was clear at that point in time to me I looked around our society and I said where do we need this? Where are the needs very great and um, and where is a place where they're not being met? And it was clear to me that that was our court system. And our court system is structured in a way to get great outcomes for people, but it's not always structured in a way that promotes engagement and promotes some of the healing that people do need. And, um, you know, the greatest need that can be experienced is after someone experiences a crime. And this was my inspiration for going to law school because I wanted to find a way to bring restorative justice into our legal system. And while I was in law school and through that process, I had the opportunity to go work and study in New Zealand. And I focused on New Zealand as as many of your listeners already know. New Zealand is one of the front runners in restorative justice in the world and their juvenile justice system is structured so that restorative justice is the first option. It's the first um, first course of action when a juvenile commits a crime. And so I went there with the mission of really trying to look at the system, both within the courts and within the culture, and ask myself, I was asking myself the whole time while I was in New Zealand, how can we bring something like this back to Boston? How can we bring something like this back to Massachusetts? And it was through that process that I was actually able to participate in restorative conferencing um, on a Maori Marae and really understand the cultural roots of these practices, but also see it on a larger systematic scale in the court system and um, observe the way that they carry through with the many cases that come through the courts in New Zealand. And it was also through that uh, time in New Zealand where I was able to, as you mentioned, um, work on a report that was commissioned by the Ministry of Justice. I was working under a woman named Shirley Ulick who is actually um, one of the great thinkers in my mind about how restorative justice can work for situations of domestic violence or in situations in response to sexual assault. And um, she's a person that's thinking very critically about how those things can be possible, and it's really driven by this understanding that restorative justice helps us express our needs in a way that we don't have another context to to another venue to do that, and it also is inspired by making sure that we do this practice in a way that is supportive of all of the individuals coming through and the dynamics that they're facing, power dynamics and struggles, uh, certainly with people who have, um, who are survivors of very critical and, and traumatic events in their lives, being respectful to make sure that we do this in a way that's not further victimizing their experience. Mm-hmm. So um, I do think Shirley Ulick is one of the forerunners in the world. Um, in this area, and that program, it was called Project Restore, and the program was focused on adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And if you think about the messiest of messiest situations in our world the, that create the greatest amount of harm and hurt, there's almost no stronger example than childhood, um, adult survivors of childhood sexual mm-hmm. abuse. And they were looking very critically at how do we do restorative justice in this context and how do we do it well. And so those experiences, the the cultural experience in New Zealand, the the experience of evaluating the courts and the experience of working with Shirley Ulick really helped shape my foundation as I came back to Boston and asked myself, how can we bring this to Massachusetts in our court system and part of the way that we were able to um, start our program, it was really, it was a wonderful partnership with Northeastern University School of Law and a few juvenile court judges. Northeastern University School of Law has a great program called Legal Skills in Social Context. And the director, Susan mays Rothstein, is actually one of our our great partners and a member of our board. And she runs a program that allows real-life clients to partner with first-year law students. And the first-year law students are tasked with doing legal research, um, field research, and stakeholder analysis. And the clients for this project were actually two juvenile court judges, one in Suffolk County, which is the Boston proper area, named um, Judge Leslie Harris, who sits in the Dorchester Juvenile Court, The other judge was Jay Blitzman, who was the first justice of the Lowell Juvenile Court in Middlesex County. And those two judges became the clients of Northeastern University, and the students were tasked with coming up with um, stakeholder analysis to create some some founding policies and procedures for a diversion program that was conceptualized on restorative justice. And so it was mm. through that year long mm-hmm. process that they um, they interviewed stakeholders in both Middlesex County as well as Suffolk County. They interviewed prosecutors, defense attorneys, members of probation, members of the court system, academics, members in the restorative justice field. And they really were trying to evaluate the needs of all of these parties in two different locations to say, if we were going to create this, what, what should it look like, and how could it be the most helpful to you as stakeholders mm-hmm. in the system? And um, that was, I'll say that was about three years ago. And out of that program, we were really fortunate to create our own nonprofit, partner with District Attorney Marion Ryan and formerly Jerry Leone out of Middlesex County, and uh, with their support and innovative thinking, we've been able to turn that year-long stakeholder analysis of which um, I was the advising attorney on the project at that point in time, and we were able to turn that into a nonprofit and a pilot program which has grown into now an official program that is running with the courts and expanding. So Aaron, I just wanna just want to
0: mention and, and Jennifer, you as well, um, for those who are listening, if you're interested in, we think you will be, in finding out more about C4RJ as well as Juvenile Court Restorative Justice Diversion, the program which Aaron has just been speaking about, you can go to the web and find JCR jd at org. You can go to Communities for Restorative Justice by logging into c4rj.com. That's c4rj.com. So I'd like to turn to reflections on the bill that you both have been deeply involved in, as well as, of course, the coalition that's statewide in Massachusetts. Uh, rec- very recently, you two were with me as well as with the lead sponsor, Senator, Senator Jamie Eldridge, uh, as well as a, an extraordinary panel comprising of D.A. Ryan, Chief uh, Robert Bongiorno, and then our our venerable judge, retired judge, um, John Kratzley. And so what I'd like to do is just take a few minutes if each of you would respond to your reflections on also the recent event this week that you had in the House and where, where the bill's at and what people can do right now um, to take action to support it as well as anything that you'd like to share with someone um, that might be listening in Massachusetts and beyond about the importance of this bill. So let's start with you, Jennifer.
1: Yeah, well, I, um, you know, we're, we've been so grateful, Molly, that you've uh, played a role here in helping to raise awareness about this bill. Uh, the one comment that really has lingered with me from the virtual town hall that took place a couple weeks ago um, is the caller who, who called in from Oregon. And uh, he um, was in the room, I think, with uh, a partner or a friend uh, who had suffered harm, and they were trying to figure out if restorative justice was uh, was an option they should consider. He was seeking advice. Uh, but what he said at the end of his comments was that Senate Bill 2078 was important not just for Massachusetts, but for all of us. And I think what he was Uh, pointing out there is that you know, as momentum builds state by state for, in support of restorative justice, uh, states who are not already on board, um, or maybe who need an expansion of what is on the books with restorative justice, you know can, can look to states like Massachusetts and others and, um, and really gain some in- inspiration. So um, he's been the wind at my back for the last couple weeks um, in, in hot pursuit of, of getting this bill moving. So Senate bill 2078 is currently. With the Senate Ways and Means Committee uh, here in Massachusetts, uh, it did get reported out favorably uh, by the uh, Children the Committee on Children, Families, and Persons with Disabilities um, earlier this year. We had a great hearing in July last summer with that committee, and uh, you know, really encouraged uh, it to be reported out favorably. So, uh, anyway, it's with Senate Ways and Means right now, and the event that we had yesterday was. Uh, build as a as a pizza lunch, um, and we were expecting you know a, a group of around 40 people, and there were about 65 or more folks who came from both sides of the legislature to learn and about. And where
0: was that held again?
1: That was held at the State House here in Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. Um, And, you know, they they were coming to hear about the bill and, um, you know, the free pizza uh, sure helped too. But but they were, you know, it was standing room only and we had to go get more chairs. It was just a really exciting turnout and we hope that that really translates to momentum. In terms of what people can do uh, at this Juncture, uh, Because the bill has been with Senate Ways and Means and because we are approaching the end of the current legislative session, which ends at the end of July, um, we would encourage people to contact their legislators, whether or not they are currently serving on Senate Ways and Means, um, to, to make a call or write a letter and, uh, and, and encourage people to, to get that bill moving uh, out, of that, out of that committee. Um, we We think that the bill just has so much merit it it covers restorative justice options uh, on the juvenile and the adult side, which I think is very progressive for for a first bill uh, in in a state that 's just passing it um, and at junctures from pre complaint, which is prior to arrest all the way through to uh, probation parole, and reentry so and everything in between, I think it will afford people. Um, more avenues to respond to harm here in the Commonwealth. Uh, the bill is also not asking for any funding at this point. Um, we we may seek that in the future, but at this point it's it's in the category of enabling legislation. Mm, that's an interesting point. And I know in Colorado,
0: when we passed um, our current law, the Restorative Justice Pilot Project, we implemented it as a self-funding project. So... Uh, or excuse me, self-funding law, which is really creative and and wonderful. So th- that entails a ten dollars surcharge, anytime uh, there's a violation of the of the law, a misdemeanor included. So um, it's it's a wonderful wonderful thing that that you're you're involved in here and catalyzing, Jennifer. And um, I'm I also want to acknowledge that I was deeply moved by. Uh, the caller from Oregon as well in the fact that I think what he's touching on in what he shared points to the importance of addressing um, any misconceptions that stakeholders might have, um, especially victims, and really being tender um, and understanding about their needs. And I want to hear from <clears throat> Aaron, if you would, uh, let's just talk for a moment about of course, the bill, but also what would you share with a victim who is interested in the possibility of restorative justice um, but has concerns so what How would you speak to those concerns? what do you think they are and um how would how does restorative justice handle these uh, these different i mean every case is different, right so Speak to speak to the, the elements of that, if you would, regarding the bill and um, victims' advocacy and rights.
2: Okay. Thank you, Molly. And yes, thank you so much for your help structuring the town hall as well and the peace alliance. One thing I do have to say about um, the fact that we had a town hall with a panel with a district attorney who was the... the Prosecuting arm of the state. We had a police chief as well as a retired judge. It was so helpful to be able to have that um, that panel speak to the value of this bill and why we do need it in our system. Because those are the people that usually have uh, a position in the system that might also have misconceptions about restorative justice and the value for the process. Just as you're saying, there might be victim concerns. There are also often concerns from other stakeholders because they aren't sure how restorative justice could also fit the needs of the current system. And um, some of the things that they spoke about on that call were that um, we need to dispel the myth that restorative justice is soft on crime and sometimes victims have that, that concern or we call them impacted parties. In our program, we actually don't say victim or offender. Um, there, there's a lot of research behind why we chose
0: these mm-hmm. terms
2: and, and chose that mm-hmm. we actually, we have moved to calling our offenders responsible parties and calling mm. up the victims impacted parties. And That's, um, that's wonderful that's the language that we use in all of our um all of our work and and part of that is because we do mainly work with juveniles but i think it corresponds also with adults that we don't want this one event to become something that labels a person or sort of predicts their future engagement with the court system. So that's part of why we're That we is such that. a
0: good point. I I'm sorry to interject here, but I have to say let's let's underscore that point with a yellow highlighter. Um, I in the dialogues that we've had over just a short 3 years, but nonetheless on my mind always has been how are we reframing our languaging? And I know that Dominic Barter and his process with restorative circles has a certain way of re-languaging that, uh, as you say, has an impact. So um, that's that, that, that's really extraordinary to hear that you've you've done that and and what it represents in knowing that we are um, we have a choice to either reciprocate the cycle of violence in every way that we approach justice or to reframe it, right?
2: Absolutely. And, you know, one thing, since you you did bring up uh, the concerns of a a victim or an impacted party specifically, I do want to say that I've had some conversations with um, people who have experienced severe crime, for instance, survivors of homicide, who actually don't want to necessarily be called an impacted party and they've said they prefer to be identified as survivors. And um, I want to also respect that and say that, um, I I use that example because I want us to remember that in this process, if there is a person who has experienced harm, their concerns should actually dictate how we go forward. Mm -hmm. And um, we should really defer to um, what they would like to be identified as or how they would like the system set up. And so to speak to the concerns that a impacted party or a survivor might have after they experience a crime, um, oftentimes people have a misconception that restorative justice is soft on crime. I think you heard in the town hall last, last time that Chief Bongiorno said some officers We'll call it hug-a-thug or um, I believe that, um, that there are many different labels that people can use when they don't understand exactly how powerful the restorative process can be. But the fact that restorative justice includes an engagement between the person that was harmed and the person who committed the harm, that is so much harder then we actually, <laughs> that is so much more difficult than we actually um, make people do in our legal system because too often people are able to accept a plea to a crime which is essentially accepting responsibility but at no point are we ensuring or at no point are we actually um, making sure that that message comes across to the person that was harmed and restorative justice allows for that. Part of this piece of legislation is that it would open up restorative justice as an option for a term of of probation, which would mean, you know, it, it could be one of many terms. It could be one of a couple of terms. For example, if someone needed substance abuse counseling, they could have a term that requires them to attend that, but they also might have a term that requires them to attend a restorative process. And I think that would be a wonderful benefit added to our process if, at that stage in our justice system where someone is taking a plea for a crime, they are essentially accepting responsibility. Why um, it's just common sense that we should also Mm -hmm. create an avenue for them to engage the people that they hurt and have the restorative process if that's what the parties want.
0: I really, I really, I just want to say, um, if I might, how important it is what you mention—the um, opportunity and the signal, uh, both in words, in practice, and beyond that, um, to those impacted or the survivors, uh, that they know, without any doubt, that they're safe and that they they are guiding this process. Um, and that their, you know, their needs um, are ex- extraordinarily important and leading, um, as you're saying. And I just, uh, our time is up. Um, I'm so grateful for you both to be here with us today, and I really want to be able to just take this last moment here to allow for any closing comments that you, you two, might have. And then I want to share a brief announcement about ways that people can take action to support Senate Bill 2078 right now to help catalyze it along and um, also to find out more about uh, your organization. So do either of you have any closing comments that you'd like to share? Jennifer, any closing comments today?
1: Um yeah I think you know just reiterating uh for so folks who are interested in hearing a little bit more about our work at c for r j the uh website is c4rj.com. Also, I think it'd be um, we'd be remiss not to acknowledge the other people who are doing this work throughout the the country um, and uh, and around the world. I have taken great heart multiple times by having conversations with uh, with peers who are in this field. So, um, anyway, a shout out to to friends and other practitioners out there who are doing this work every day with um, with great heart. Mm. Very well said. Thank you, Jennifer Larson of Communities
0: for Restorative Justice, and Erin, any closing comments?
2: Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, And uh, likewise, I'd like to let people know that if they are interested in looking at our program a little bit more in depth, our website is restorativejusticediversion.org. Those three words all run together, no spaces or punctuation. I also want to acknowledge the Restorative Justice Coalition of Massachusetts, which Jennifer and I are both a part of that coalition, and that is a group, a statewide coalition of concerned citizens who practice or support restorative justice in various capacities throughout the Commonwealth. And um, those people have been having monthly calls about how to strategically move forward restorative restorative justice legislation in Massachusetts, and they have been instrumental in all of these steps of action at the State House. The only other thing that I would like to say in closing is that with this bill, um, sometimes when Jennifer and I speak and present about our programs, there's a follow-up question, and that question is, why do we need a piece of legislation if we already have restorative justice programs? And I want to make very clear to people that there is a direct need for restorative justice legislation, um, even though our two small programs already exist. And that's simply because this legislation is statewide. The legislation would create restorative justice as a legal option. So it would become something that attorneys could request in the process, because it would be an option that, a legal option that they would have to explain to their clients and could then request. And so for instance, a defense attorney might have a client that they think is a good candidate for restorative justice, or a client who really does wanna take responsibility, and they can have those private conversations and determine whether or not um, they would like to speak to the prosecution about this as a resolution for a case at the beginning or at the end or as a term of probation. and so by creating legislation that makes it a legal option across the state, it opens up the conversation for players in the system to start to request restorative justice for their, their um, parties. And in no way sacrifice any integrity of their case. They're not making any admissions or concessions at that point in time. They're simply expressing that they would like to consider a legal option. And that is one of the very valuable things that will then help restorative justice programs expand throughout our state and hopefully the nation. Um, But it also opens up the avenue for training because if something is a legal option, if it is part of our legal code, then the attorneys must know about it and understand it. The judges must know about it and understand it, and probation officers must know about it and understand it. And so it really also opens up a huge educational platform where we can then um, start educating partners throughout our state, and in this way it will become one wave after the next of helping restorative justice spread, which, which will then help start to meet the needs of all parties in our system. Because even Mm. if our legal system is doing its job, even if every single person in the process does exactly um, what they're supposed to and comes away with a successful case, sometimes there are still needs that our system is not set up to address and um, restorative justice can be an additional tool to address those.
0: Mm, Very good. Thank you so much, Erin Freeborn of Juvenile Court Restorative Justice Diversion, as well as both of you with the Coalition for Restorative Justice in Massachusetts. And I have one last question for you, Erin. If someone wanted to get a hold of that coalition or um, learn more about how they can directly get involved with the bill and also with the coalition, Who would they contact?
2: Um, They could contact either myself or Jennifer. Um, So our two organizations, C4RJ and JCRJD, are both members of the coalition. And if they contact one of us, we will be able to get them into um, communication with the coalition. And if they're interested in participating in those strategy calls and some of the action items, we will certainly connect them.
0: Okay. Well, that's just wonderful. Thank you so much. So, uh, again, just such a grateful thank you um, to you both for your extraordinary service to this field and, and incredible individual stories, um, the depth of background that you both bring to the catalyzing of the state of Massachusetts, and as we know, much beyond that in this field of restorative justice, and I want to just add that there is another option for those of you who are interested in taking action in Massachusetts, there is a Peace Alliance action team that has formed. It's Cambridge-based, and it's an action team that Padmaja Surin has stepped forward to lead. And she is more than happy to receive an email from you, Um, what we're doing as uh, the Peace Alliance In Massachusetts as as an action team, um, we are helping to inform, inspire, and mobilize citizens to create political will for breakthroughs in peace building, and of course, as it concerns, restorative justice. So if if that interests you, it's a, a minimal time commitment to be on an action team. It's really easy to connect with others who have equal or um, communal interest in providing that impact that will catalyze a bill like this and other important things that are on the table um, politically and otherwise in your communities and as a state. So P- Padmaja's email is Surin, P-A-D-Y-S-U-R-E-N, at gmail.com. That's P-A-D-Y-S-U-R-E-N, at gmail. Or you can also pick up the phone and give her a call at 508-317-1783. That's 508-317-1783. And in addition to that, please circulate this podcast and share it widely. It's an open source based right. So we, we want to offer this as an educational tool, uh, a springboard for dialogue and for catalyzing the growth of the field of restorative justice, not only in Massachusetts, but but much beyond that. And as Erin and Jennifer said, thank you not only to those in Massachusetts, the Coalition, to Senator Jamie Eldridge, and to our amazing panelists from our recent town hall, but also to all of you who are on the ground every day working towards a more restorative practice of justice that meets the needs and values and holds accountable while also helping to show the cause and effect of the things that, that come up in our daily lives. Conflict is inevitable, but we have choices as to how we handle it. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We hope we'll, we'll see you soon on Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach. Ubuntu, until next time. Thank you.